Good morning, everyone. So glad to be with you. I get to be a part of this sermon series, which is a lot of fun. And um, Pastor David, you know, he wouldn't admit this, but he gave me the hardest text of the whole series. Um, I think he was trying to punish me. He's a little angry about something. I don't know. But nevertheless, I am grateful to be here, grateful to be a part. And, um, and uh, I, I was thinking about this. Um, have you ever, do you remember what it was like, or maybe have you ever felt like you weren't, um, you were left out of something? You ever felt like you weren't on the in, right? You remember, you remember what that, maybe it's just, just me, but um, I hate that feeling. And I remember as a young kid or a teenager, like maybe you didn't get invited to a party or something and all your friends, you found out that all your friends got invited. And I remember the emotions of that feeling of being on the outs, right? And at first it's disbelief. You're like, surely this can't be right. Something's maybe the invitation got lost in the mail. Something happened like this. Maybe they're doing a surprise party for me. So that's why they didn't tell me about their party. You know, I don't know. This is where my mind goes. Right. So at first it's disbelief. You're like, this doesn't make any sense. And then you, you quickly turn to anger and you're like, I can't believe they didn't invite me. When they invited Johnny over here, nobody likes Johnny. He's not as close as I am to them. Like, what are they doing inviting me, right? And you go through that anger period, and then you usually end up that Friday night, like, just in your bed crying with a tub of ice cream and imagining how much fun that they're probably having and trying to convince yourself, I don't I wouldn't even want to go to that stupid party, right? Like, we can all remember that. You remember that feeling. There's, there's a terrible feeling of being left out, not being on the in. And it's funny, the human heart, because I was thinking, oh, my teenage self, you know, I'm so stupid. But then I realized my heart hasn't changed at all. Like, in fact, this is how ridiculous it is. Some of you can relate to this. Just, just recently, I was talking to some coworkers, and I was like, man, we got so many meetings. Like, I hate being a part of these, these meetings. I feel like, why am I even here? And then wasn't a day later, I find out that there was a meeting that I did not get inv- invited to. And I was like, why didn't I get invited to that meeting? What's going on? Like, what, am I not good? And I don't have something to say to that topic, you know? And I just remember how stupid it is, right? Like, I'm complaining on one sense. But there's something about that feeling, something about the idea of being on the out and not the in that I think is indicative of the human heart. We all have a longing to be in, and we all hate the feeling of being out. You know, in the book of Genesis, the creation account, it tells us of Adam and Eve who had perfect identity with God. They were in. And then because of sin, the relationship with God is affected for all of humanity. There is this separation. I think that concept is the very heart of the longing that we all have to be on the end, the longing to have identity. Another way to think about identity is the sense of value and worth. What gives me value and worth? Have you ever watched the old Rocky movies when he's getting beat up and his wife's like, why are you doing this? And he's like, I got to prove I'm not a bum, right? That's the human heart. I got to prove I'm not a bum. I got to find the in. I got to not be on the outside. Every one of us is pursuing identity. In the text we're going to look at this morning, Jesus himself talks about a party. And he talks about who's on the in and who's on the out. Because Jesus realized the condition of the human heart, and he knew his audience and who he was talking to. He knew you and I this morning. 
And so in this text that we're going to look at this morning, what we're going to see is the belief system that the world has and that his audience had about who's in and who's out and how Jesus wants to confront their worldview and he wants to flip it on its head and say, in the kingdom of heaven, we don't operate the way the kingdom of the world does. And so this morning, here's what I hope. I'm going to share three, three things that I think are evident from this text about how the world defines what gets you in. And then we're going to see what Jesus has to say about what's different. So I'm going to read Matthew chapter 8, starting at verse 5, and then I want to pray. Everybody with me? You guys alive? You guys well? Do we need the ushers to bring some coffee? I'm not allowed. They're not allowed to do that. I don't have that authority. So I was just, you know. Anyway, chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 5, this is what it says. When Jesus returned to Capernaum, a Roman officer came and pleaded with him. Lord, my young servant lies in bed, paralyzed and in terrible pain. Jesus said, I will come and heal him. But the officer said, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come into my home. Just say the word from where you are. My servant will be healed. I know this because I am under the authority of my superior officers. And I have authority over my soldiers. I only need to say go and they go. Or come and they come. And if I say to my slaves, do this, they do it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Turning to those who followed him, he said, I tell you the truth, I have not seen faith like this in all Israel. And I tell you this, that many Gentiles will come from all over the world, from the east and the west, sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the feast of the kingdom of heaven. But many Israelites, those from whom the kingdom was prepared, will be thrown into outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the Roman officer, go back home, because you believed it has happened. And the young servant was healed that same hour. Lord, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for your spirit that is here with us even now in this moment that fills our hearts. And I pray that that, um, your words would become true to us. That today that we would hear your voice, hear you speak to us through the word, through the Bible. And that Jesus would become more beautiful. And maybe we would examine our hearts this morning and say, what are the things that I find identity in? What are the things I think will get me in? God, help me to cast those aside and hold on to the truth that's only found in the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So in this story, Jesus is, uh, he is traveling around with his disciples, which is predominantly a religious Jewish audience. And he uh, is doing miracles, he's interacting with people, all kinds of amazing things. And in this story in particular, uh, it's kind of sandwiched in between a bunch of miracle stories. So if you go on and read more of this context, uh, Matthew chapter 8 and beyond, you'll see a bunch of miracles that Jesus does. And when I first opened this text, I thought, oh, this is a classic like miracle story, right? This is about us Um, having our faith that Jesus can do the miraculous. And certainly he can, and that is a part of the story. But as I started to dive deeper, what I realized is there's more, so much more to this story than just the idea that Jesus can heal. In fact, Jesus in this story introduces this kind of strange uh, little narrative at the end of this about this um, kingdom of heaven party and celebration and feasting and some will be there and some won't and those who think they're going to be there aren't and this guy who you don't think is going to be there is and it's this interesting whole idea and what, what I found was this story really isn't just simply about Jesus healing. What it's really about is the kingdom of heaven. And how so often in life, we forget and we invert and we chase the things that are opposite from the kingdom of heaven. And so today we're going to look at this statement that Jesus makes. 
So think about this. He's surrounded by a predominantly Jewish audience, an audience that is a descendant of Israel, and he says, I have never seen, I says, I tell you the truth, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. Now, it's hard for us to totally grasp this statement that Jesus makes. This would have been a highly offensive statement. This would have been a highly controversial statement. And this morning, if I say anything that offends you, don't worry. I, I have been offended this whole week in preparation for this message. God has just been consistently offending my heart. So I'm with you. Let's, let's all be offended by right? Don't get mad at me. Blame, blame him. Blame, blame the Bible. Um, but there's something offensive about this statement to the audience that he's preaching to. And in fact, I think there's three thoughts. And, and so Jesus starts to lay out three things that we know if we understand the original audience that he's talking to. Three things that would have been offensive to them. Three things that they thought would get you in that Jesus says don't. The first is this, ethnicity. Ethnicity. So it's interesting, right? This this audience that he's preaching to, and in fact, the, the book of Matthew is written predominantly to a Jewish audience. And one of the things that they believed was that their ethnicity, being the descendants of Israel, being Jewish, was one of the things that got them in. And so this story is kind of wild because here comes a Roman centurion who was not Jewish, who was not a descendant of Israel. And he comes up to Jesus, and Jesus not only interacts with him, he then goes on and says, this guy's got better faith than all of you. This is a highly offensive thing because in their minds, ethnicity and culture was one of the primary things that was going to get us in. It was one of the things that we could find our hope and our value and our identity in. It was a massive part of their value and worth was their ethnicity. And I was thinking about it. I was like, isn't that actually, that's not that different than today in our culture now. I remember I'm from Vermont, which is not a very diverse place. It's a, a lot of white skiers and snowboarders. Um, and I moved to, after graduating Bible college, my wife and I moved to Long Island, New York, which was very diverse. And I remember being, being super excited, loving it, seeing all the different cultures. And in my mind, I thought, oh, the more diverse place you live, it must be the less racism there is. Some of you have lived in diverse places. You're laughing, right? What I found was the opposite. And I was, I was really startled at first because I'd interact with people and they'd be like, oh, yeah, we don't like those people and we're against that. And, and I'm Dominican. We don't like Puerto Ricans. And I'm like, what, what is going on? You know, and, and it was every, everybody had issue with other people. And there was so much what I realized I shouldn't have been surprised because what I realized is so much of our identity gets wrapped up in our ethnicity and culture. And you can put those two together. It's not always the color of our skin. Sometimes it's the culture that we're a part of, right? And it's very easy because we live in a world where so much identity is connected to ethnicity and culture. And what we do as, as humans, because our hearts are so longing to be in, one of the ways that we feel in is to separate us from other people because we've got to be in at someone else's expense, so we're in and they're out. And so one of the natural ways that has happened throughout all of human history is we, we attach identity to ethnicity so that we feel in. The problem is others are now out. And we surround ourselves with people that are our culture, our ethnicity. We think, oh, those other people, they don't get it. They don't understand. And without even realizing it, we can start to think they're the enemy. This is my family and they're the enemy. Now, here's what I'm, I want you to understand and what I'm not trying to say, and I don't think Jesus is saying this either. What I'm not saying is that ethnicity and culture don't matter or that they're not important. 
In fact, I found the opposite. At the second church we worked at in Long Island for 12 years, it was so ethnically diverse. I think there's something like more than 70 different countries represented. And one of the things that I saw that was incredible there is that the more people fell in love with Jesus, the more they actually celebrated and owned their culture and their ethnicity. But it was different. Because what I saw was people that their ethnicity and culture, instead of now being the thing they thought got them in, it was the thing that actually sent them out. And here's what I mean. They begin to take their culture and ethnicity and celebrate it and share it with the people that are around them. So you had Indian people bringing their food to share with Jamaicans, and you had Caribbean bringing their food to share with Koreans, and all people were bringing culture and sharing their ceremonies and bringing, wearing the things that they would typically wear, and you'd go to wedding ceremonies, and it was a celebration of all this mix of culture. And what I found was when people fell in love with Jesus, when the gospel hit their heart, ethnicity and culture didn't not matter it actually became something that instead of being the thing that got them in and separate from people, it became the thing that sent them out and began to be shared with other people. They began to look at those different than them, not as the enemy, but as their family who could benefit and enjoy from their culture. It was an incredible thing. There's a reason why the Bible describes heaven as this multicultural experience where we're going to be sharing food together in different languages and all this. Right? It's a beautiful picture of heaven in the church. But the problem is oftentimes if we're not careful, even within the church, we operate the same way that the world does and we find our identity in our culture. We think this will get me in and everyone else is out. The second thing we see from the text is not just ethnicity, but we also think the thing that will get us in is politics. So this, this man, this Roman centurion, he was a Roman guard, which means he was a political enemy of the Jews. So Jesus and his disciples would have been of the belief because at this time the Romans had come in and they had conquered that area. And one of the things that they would do is they would conquer an area and then they would get guards from other, they would recruit soldiers from other places and then send the soldiers there and the soldiers would kind of allow them to operate with their culture, but with the oversight of them. And that's what was happening. And so the Jews had this belief, and, the, and, and certainly Jesus and who he rolled with, they, they would have had this belief that to be affi affiliated with the Romans was to be a political enemy of the cause of the Jewish people. This is why you hear the Bible and the Gospels talk about tax collectors as being sinners, right? Well, one of the things is because they were in partnership with the Romans, it was like, you're against us, you're, you are our oppressors. And so here comes somebody who is the very embodiment of the oppressor of the Jewish people, and he comes in, and Jesus says, this guy's got more faith than all of you. You understand the magnitude of the offense that this could create? But what is Jesus really saying? What he's saying is, you think politics is what gets you in. And I couldn't help but be um, overwhelmed by the reality of how much this is true today. I can't think of a time, and I'm 37 years old, so I'm sure maybe there's, there's plenty of you who have lived longer than me, but I can't think of a time when our, our country has been more politically divided in our beliefs. And it seems like, is, there, is every issue a political issue now, right? Like whether or not you, you like Frosted Flakes versus Cinnamon Toast Crunch is somehow turned into a political issue. It feels like you can't, right? You can't have any belief that isn't somehow political and attached to a party, right? Everything has become political. And what ends up happening, or what has happened, and this is within the church, is we align ourselves with a political party and beliefs about certain issues. And what we do is we feel like now 
I've got my tribe, and anybody who's not part of my tribe is on the outs. They are now the enemy. And so if you watch a different news station than I, if you think differently about the border or guns or the vaccine, whatever, right? We can pick any issue we want. If you think differently than me, you're the enemy. People that agree with me are my tribe. They're my family. You're on the outs. I'm on the in. And to take it further, people in the church, often, even us, if we're honest, we start to believe the truth that if the right leaders get elected, if the right laws get passed, if the right person becomes president, there will somehow be this salvation of our people. You realize that we start to look, look at politics as being a saving uh, apparatus in our lives. Now, again, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying politics don't matter. I'm not saying issues don't matter. I'm not saying you shouldn't care about those or be in tune. Anybody that knows me, and hangs around, you know I've got strong beliefs about different things, and I love talking about them, and I love debating them. I love that. I'm not saying that, but what I'm saying is when that becomes the ultimate thing, and it causes us to sit in a church where we should be looking at each other as brothers and sisters, and instead we're looking at each other as the enemy, it's taken a place in our hearts it never was meant to be. And here's the thing. Social media has made this so much worse because what we don't realize is we think I'll just say whatever I want and call people enemies when in reality it's likely that those people are probably sitting next to you on a Sunday morning. And, and, and so we lift our hands and worship together, sing songs, but then we go home and, and call each other stupid and idiots and, and, and we totally demean each other. Why? Because we think this is what will get us in. As a, college, um, as a college pastor, I, I remember one night after our service, we had service on Friday night, and we got done, and, and uh, me and one of my buddies, who has a really different belief system politically than I do, we started having this conversation, and we would love to talk, and we'd love to kind of debate back and forth, and I remember one, all of a sudden looking up, and there was like 15 college students standing around our table, as if we were in some sort of like epic battle, you know, and they were all watching, they're like, who's going down, this is great. And, uh, and at first, my pastor mind, my pastoral hat was like, oh, no, this is bad. Because I don't want them to think that this matters more than, than each other, right? And, um, but as time went on, and I actually had some conversations with some of them after, I remember one of them saying, no, 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 thank you so much. Because I've never seen, like, Christians disagree on an issue and have really heated debate over something, but at the end of the day, like, really love each other and consider each other brothers. And it really dawned on me that these young college students had never known that. They didn't know a world where a Republican and Democrat and an Independent could all sit down and go, hey, let's talk about this. But at the end of the day, man, I love you so much. And, and, uh, and, and we're going to go have a meal together and we're going to hang out. It wasn't a part of their world. It was totally foreign to them. What would it look like? See, issues matter. Politics can matter. They can be a part of our lives. But man, they can't matter more than we do to each other. And what would it look like if the church could model a world where we can discuss issues, we can debate topics, but at the end of the day, you're my brother, you're my sister, and I will ride or die with you no matter what. Wouldn't that be appealing to the world and the culture that we're in? So we have ethnicity, we have politics, and lastly, we have religion. This, uh, this Roman centurion, um, this Roman guard, one of the things we know about him is he was not a, a, a Jewish man. He did not practice the religion of the followers of Jesus. 
So Jesus was a descendant of Israel. He was a Jewish, Jewish man. His followers were all predominantly Jewish, and they had very certain strict religious beliefs and practices and, and, and steps to follow. And, and, and so this man, when he comes up to Jesus, there's in particular something that happens which would have been highly questionable, highly offensive. And Jesus was kind of in the business of doing this a lot. He loved offending people, right? And one of the things is, he's, this man comes up and asks him for healing, which even to some would have been over the top. Like, you shouldn't even mix with a Gentile, right? That was their belief, a non-Jewish person. But this guy says, hey, can you heal my, my servant? And Jesus goes, sure, take me to your house, which was even worse. You wouldn't go to a house of a Gentile, right? You can't do that. And, of course, we know Jesus does this all the time, right? You remember the story of the woman at the well where He's doing things that are offensive. And, and so for the religious people, here is a person who is definitely not in. This guard was not religious. Now, he, we do know he had some belief in God because he recognized Jesus. He calls him Lord. Like, so he has some belief in God. But he, he wasn't the one who was following all the proper channels and religious uh, avenues that they had in their mind. He didn't fit the bill as a proper person who was going to get in to the final party in their minds. And yet here Jesus says, this guy has more faith than all of you. It's a startling statement. But isn't it true of today? How easy and tempting it is in our world, in our culture, to begin to find our identity in religion, in our, in our religious nature, in our religious spirit. We, we, uh, we, we, we look around the world, and it's very easy, if we're not careful, is to think that we are in because of our own good behavior. Right? I'm in because I'm doing the right things. I'm, I'm going to church. I'm giving. I'm, I'm praying. I'm trying to read my Bible every day. I'm trying to act like a good Christian. And in our minds, whether we realize or not, oftentimes we start to think, therefore, God loves me more. Therefore, I'm in because I'm doing the right things. And in fact, in my years of pastoring, what I found was there was a lot of people that came into church and were really connected and really involved who you would have said, oh, yeah, they love Jesus. But what we found oftentimes is they didn't really love Jesus as much as they loved the feeling of being in. And there's something about this church community and the religious spirit that always makes people feel in. Why? Because they get the list of rules and they feel like if I can follow the rules, then I can, I can earn my way in. And Jesus confronts us and he says, this is not the kingdom of heaven at all. You know, and, and, and here's, one of the, here's one of the massive problems with this religious spirit that takes over even the church today. When we think we're in because we're part of the tribe, everybody who's not is out. Everybody who's not here is on the outs. And in fact, what can happen is we can start to view fellow Christians as family and anybody who's not as enemies. We, we can do it. I, I, remember, uh, I remember one time I was, I was teaching a class on, for new believers and there was a young woman who came in, and we were talking about sharing your faith. And uh, I said, hey, anybody got a story about how they share their faith? And she's like, yeah, yeah. She raised her hand. And um, there was a coffee house right, near, right down the block from our church, which myself and the other pastors had been really trying to like, build relationship with the, the owners of this coffee house. They didn't know God. And we were working hard like months and months and months and spending probably way too much money on coffee that we didn't need. But we were trying to build relationship, right? And, um, and she comes in, and, and I remember her telling this story. She's like, yeah, I was just having coffee at this coffee house. And I was sitting there with a friend, and we were doing a Bible study, I think, and we were drinking coffee, and I started to hear a song come on the music that they were playing. You know, they kind of play some music quietly in the background. 
And that song had words that were inappropriate. And so I got up and I went to the owner and I confronted them. And I said, that's not appropriate. My friend and I are Christians doing a Bible study and you're playing inappropriate songs when we're trying to enjoy ourselves. And the thing is, like, she was pretty excited about this as an opportunity of sharing her faith. And I don't know how well I pastorally handled that moment. I'm going to be honest with you. But I remember trying to walk her through it. I was like, okay, well, let's think about this, right? What did we gain out of doing that? Like, what happened? Okay, they changed the song. Okay, that's a win, I guess, right? What did we lose? Well, one of the things is we already had the idea that anybody who doesn't believe, think, and act like me is an enemy. I don't really love them or care for them, but I just want them to look, act, and behave like me. I want them to be in like me. But the other thing that we did is we probably reinforced the belief that this woman had, the owner of the coffee shop, which are Christians are self-righteous jerks who think they're in and everyone that's out. That attitude is the opposite of Christianity. It's the complete opposite. But unfortunately, when we begin to treat religion as our identity, the only thing it can do is create self-righteousness in us and judgment in us. And I'm not saying not stand up for truth, but what I'm saying is at the end of the day, the evidence of our faith is our desperate love for people and our recognition that you and I are as broken as anybody. I'm going to invite the band to come up as we come to a close. So here's the reality. Number one, the world believes what gets you in is ethnicity. Number two, politics. And number three, religion. Certainly there's a whole lot of other things that we could talk about of ways that we process and think, this is what will give me identity. This is what will give me value and worth. But those three, I think, stand out. And Jesus comes in and he presents an alternative. He begins to flip their worldview on its end. And the, the truth of what he says about this, this final uh, party, right? He says, I tell you this, many Gentiles that will come from all over the world, from the east and the west, and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the feast of the kingdom of heaven. But many Israelites, who for those the kingdom was prepared, will be thrown out in darkness. Now this image, what he's talking about, this feast, was well known amongst the Jews. It was well known throughout the Old Testament. It was this imagery of heaven, what it was going to be like in their perception of that concept. It was the ultimate getting in. And Jesus comes in, he flips it on his head, and, and he reveals to him, he says, some of you think you're going to be there, but you're not. And the people that you don't think are going to be there are going to be there. And, and so the answer to the question, who's in and who's not, how do I get in to the ultimate party, right? The ultimate new heavens, new earth, eternity with Christ is revealed in the, actually in the response of this guard. He comes to Jesus and he says, will you give me a miracle? And Jesus says, sure, take me to your house. Now, if it was me, I think I'd be like, wow, awesome, that was easy. I thought I was going to give you money or like beg you or something. Like, okay, we'll just come, right, if that was me. The response of this guard is startling, right? And what's his response? He starts off and he says, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come into my home. See, he reveals there's two parts to this, and the first is this. He reveals what gets us in is this, a humility and brokenness of spirit. This guard, as he stood before Jesus, recognized his unworthiness to be in. 
He recognized there's nothing I can do that can earn my way in. There's nothing I can do that's deserving of your love, that's deserving of anything. There's no amount of power, prestige. There's no amount of money. There's no amount of devotion. There's no amount of anything that I can do that would somehow earn my way in. He had this deep recognition as he stood before Christ as to his utter unworthiness to be there. His utter brokenness, his utter sinfulness. And so imagine when Jesus is standing next to some who have a self-righteousness about them and think they've earned their way in, he stands before another who looks and says, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. But that's the heart of the kingdom. That's the heart of the gospel. Christians at their very core recognize their unworthiness to even be in his presence. We're unworthy. You cannot be a follower of Jesus until you first recognize that. But the second thing he says is he says, I know you're so powerful that you don't even have to come. You could just do it. So he recognizes his own brokenness and unworthiness and then at the same time recognizes the unbelievable power and authority of Jesus. Your Lord, your King. And so he compares his authority to the authority he has over soldiers. Notice that. He's elevating Jesus as he's lowering himself. This is the gospel. And of course, the truth is, we know that it wouldn't be long after this that Jesus would go to a cross. And he would, in that moment, be betrayed by, by his own ethnicity. He would be betrayed by both political parties. He would be betrayed by the religious and irreligious. He would be betrayed by his so-called family. And on that cross, he took on all that you and I deserve because of our brokenness. And here's what he did. In that moment... The Bible tells us that he willingly put himself out so that you and I could be brought in. So that for the first time in our history, in the history of humankind, we could be brought in not because of what we did, not because of our achievements or our accomplishments, because of his work. He imparted onto us his identity, an identity that we couldn't earn and we don't need to be afraid of losing. For the first time, he was put out so we could be brought in. And that means today, if your hope is in Jesus, if your faith is in the gospel, you don't have to search for what gets you in. You already have it. Now your life can be about loving and serving and helping others find the freedom that comes in knowing him. Would you, would you bow your heads with me? I want to pray for you this morning.